I have Dr. Gio Mar. He is a professor at Vassar College, and also he was a former professor at Drexel University. His latest book is A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete. You may also know him by Decolonizing Dialectics. How are you today? I'm doing great, Armando. Thank you. Cool, cool. So yeah, I've been familiar with your work for quite some time. I read Building the Commune back when I was in college. And also, I recently read your book, A World Without Police. And that is definitely a discussion that I've been having with people within Richmond, Virginia, really because of the significance of Richmond, Virginia as, of course, not only the former and final capital of the Confederacy, but also the amount and the prominence of Confederate monuments that were in the city and how they were in many cases, literally torn down by protesters, but also by the movement surrounding, I don't want to say civil rights, but as Angela Davis would say, a reckoning with colonialism and white supremacy and racism that was the summer of 2020 when it came to the protests that surrounded and and sparked off by the death of George Floyd and and Breonna Taylor. I often like to ask guests how they've come to politics and really what inspires their drive and what they would see as justice in the world. I really want to have a conversation with you a little bit about your background because some parts of Wikipedia have been scrubbed a little bit, but I definitely want to understand your upbringing and how you came to university and really to be a university professor. Can you tell me a bit about your background in terms of your childhood um, and, and a bit about where you grew up and, and what drives you through the politics that, is, that you have. For me, it's, you know, these two things are incredibly linked, although in ways that maybe are not super obvious. I'm not, you know, I'm from the country, uh, you know, I'm from uh, an incredibly white area. I grew up in, in rural Maine, in the countryside. And, and so this was a place where maybe the overt white supremacy of policing was not always obvious. The sort of brutal role of police as enforcers of property and capital maybe was a little more obvious, but still not clear to, to, to many. But essentially, my upbringing was, you know, I grew up super poor in the country to, you know, really idealistic parents who, who would move to the country to sort of live a kind of rural lifestyle. And we ended up slightly unexpectedly, you know, growing up without without electricity, without running water for a lot of it, very much having to be self-sufficient and in a way that gave me a, a, an incredibly acute, this is under Reagan, right, an incredibly acute, if latent kind of class consciousness. I said, you know, you know, hating rich people was really the, the start of my politics and understanding that, like, even if, and I think this happens to a lot of people, like, even if you don't know the mechanisms of, you know, how you're living and, and how you're suffering, um, you know that someone must be responsible and some structure, uh, you know, must be sort of held to account. And so that was the sort of the beginning, in a way, the kind of anchor of what would later be political development. But, you know, again, this is a development that depended a lot on music, for example. You know, I was just thinking the other day about this new Rage Against the Machine tour. And this was, you know, this was a band that helped me understand politics in a certain way because I was living so far from where anything political seemed to be happening. And yet I was able to plug into that, to plug into pop to plug into lots of more politicized manifestations and from there begin to build a a kind of broader uh, consciousness. Yeah, that's interesting. You said, I mean, of course, many people would think that the entire country would have internet. The entire country has electricity. It's, It's very hard to conceive of for many people within my age bracket that anyone would grow up without electricity, just period, let alone running water. And yeah, no, of course, and there was yeah. no internet back then, of course, either. So, 
Right, right, right. Of course, or at the very least, the internet was very, very nascent. I mean, it certainly wasn't broadband laid across the country. Many people would think after the 30s and the 40s with the Rural Electrification Act that essentially the entire country was sort of civilized, if not domesticated in that way. And to have several elements, several parts of the country, even to this day, that do not have running water, in particular on Native American reservations, without electricity is fascinating. Can you tell me, how did you access the music work of Rage Against the Machine without electricity? <laughs> well, that was one. Yeah, that was a little later. But I mean, I think oh, your okay. point is, is, is a good one because you've got, the, you know, this question of who's being served under what we know that and we know perfectly well that people with water in Flint, for example, are still subject to massive amounts of environmental racism that allows them, you know, to be, uh, you know, poisoned essentially by their government. And that's when, you know, that's when water is being delivered, right? We know that all services are incredibly asymmetrical in the way that they're delivered into which, which communities. And that's all premised on this sort of question of like who matters and who doesn't, right? Because if you're talking about rich communities, suburban communities, you know that they're getting the best water. You know that they're, you know, you know getting the best access to these things. Yeah. It was when I was very young. And then, you know, I started, honestly, my, my first records were, you know, were actual physical records that I would play on a battery operated, you know, a little turntable. But as I got a little older, obviously, really you know, cool. we began to get access. To, to certain uh, to certain things, of course. Again, internet was very new, but we're you know getting, you know going to the record store, getting you know getting access to these things. It's so raging as a machine. Dead Prez, you know, was incredibly crucial to me. Late this is later on when I'm in sort of high school and college and everything. But you know, it's also a question of this asymmetry of the way that we understand political life. Um, my mom was actually a probation officer for many years, uh, and she couldn't really understand what I was saying about the police because she knew police. She thought they seemed kind of nice. Um, she could see again how maybe they uphold class distinctions, in a, and this was in a place that was almost universally white. Um, but she couldn't see the broader structure of white supremacy built into the sort of like structure of the country, right? Um, because these are things that become more obvious, say, where I live in Philadelphia today, right? Like that, you know, an unmistakable aspect of how police operate. But these kinds of things in the way, and I think this is crucial for thinking through politics in the present, right? How do people in different parts of the country relate to movements around, say, Black Lives Matter? How do they plug into that? How do they conceptualize it? And how are they connected into these things, even from a distance? For me, the understanding, or at least a connection between rural America and its government is interesting, right? Because so much of what were democratic politics, large D democratic politics, was very rural, was bringing resources to that part of the country. That's sort of the New Deal coalition was this coalition between workers within the North, quite a few suburbanites, and also those throughout rural America within the South and the Southwest. And when you mentioned that electricity and, and internet and water all still had to be, and those lines still had to be drawn out at that time, the country was still being civilized, even under an austerity, neoliberal government like Ronald Reagan's, the relationship between funding for police, the relationship between funding for the carceral state and not having funding or not having a priority for electricity, for internet, for clean drinking water, for decent food, for access to education, mirror one another. And they have a lot to do with one another. And definitely, I, I've had this discussion with Jennifer Carol Foy, which is sort of this idea that police on this 
individual level, we talk about how nice and good people they are in as an individual, as an individual person, but also as an individual officer. The overarching structure of policing is a very paranoid idea about the world, about who others are, and about the motivations of other people, and this consistent need to keep a community under surveillance as a means to keep it safe. And I definitely want to get into policing here in, in just a few minutes, but I do want to understand your upbringing and your understanding of politics, at least your first exposure to it through the music of, of Rage Against the Machine. How does that play into, and also your background, how does that play into you going to college and your decision to become a professor? What were, what was some of the animating ideas, some of the animating, I guess you say principles that, that, that sort of pushed you towards university work and the, yeah. uh, the kind of work that you did. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was always told from a very young age that essentially studying was the only way out, right? And that was just prevented, presented to me in an incredibly stark way, right? If you want to do anything with your life, you go to college. If you want to go to college, you need straight A's. Like, you need to be better than everyone else. You need to be the smartest person around to be taken seriously. Um, and, you know, that was a sort of uh, disciplining process, which, you know, is difficult, but also, you know, it, it spoke to a certain truth. And I know this, you know, probably rings true for a lot of people uh, as well who are, you know, um, you know, who, who are raised with this mindset that you need to succeed and that there's one way to succeed. Of course, you know, what was... You know, what I appreciate about my upbringing is it was never like success for money. It was never success for this or success for that. It was it was really left open ended in terms of what it is that I wanted to to do with that. And of course, you know, I didn't I wasn't raised around people who, you know, most of whom went to college. I wasn't raised around people, certainly almost any who became professors. And so this was kind of unheard of. Um, but, you know, it became, you know, uh, something that I, I was good at, interested in and allowed me to do the work that I wanted to do. And so you are talking about politicization. I'm beginning to sort of research, you know, revolutionary movements in Latin America as I'm, you know, going to college and things like that. And, and this is plugging into, uh, you know, certain ethical orientations I had. Um, I went in high school, I actually ended up at, you know, a sort of, you know, fancy local private school um, on scholarships. And that actually really drove home a lot of the sort of class difference and class differentiation that I was feeling being exposed to rich people and, you know, beginning to understand that there's a relationship between rich people people and poor people that needs to be understood and explained being you know growing to understand that this is a, a far bigger question than what i was observing that is a global question all these things start to become part of you know what uh you know interests me and what drives me and what motivates me and really a deep deep and this is definitely something i get from my parents as well just a deep deep uh hatred of oppression anger at inequality you know something that's not you know uh so much a question of, you know, the idea of it as, as the question of how it feels, right? A visceral, uh, you know, visceral opposition to these things and a visceral sympathy for, uh, you know, for those suffering uh, around the world. Um, and so this comes to be what's motivating me. You know, when I'm in, in college, I begin to, again, study. I'm studying Zapatistas. I'm going to going down to Chiapas to do research, doing research in Cuba on the Cuban Revolution. Um, this leads me to, you know, begin to, to push harder on the questions and think about what it is that I would want to uh, study and you know um, you know studying the history of radical thought and radical philosophy and things like that while at the same time paying close attention to what's happening uh, around the world um, as I was preparing
preparing for and getting into sort of grad school where I studied political theory, uh, um, you know, I was paying closer and closer attention to what's happening in Venezuela. So, um, and knowing that, that something wasn't being told in terms of the story about what's happening in Venezuela. So, while I'm, for example, writing a dissertation that's the, that ended up being very theoretical, is the basis for decolonizing dialectics, I also was working very closely with revolutionary movements in Venezuela and, and ended up writing We Created Chavez, uh, you know, on the basis of that, those, you know, those relationships and those movements and their history. Um, and so, there's always a question of really taking that thought, which I love to do, you know, like anyone who's doing PhD and, and, and writing books is, is a nerd on some level. Um, but taking that in, you know, and understanding how it connects to and connects with um, those, uh, you know, those questions, uh, the ethical questions of sort of outrage of the structure of the world and the need to sort of overturn it. Your understanding of the Venezuelan socialist movement was the original idea that really drew me to your work. And Venezuela, a fascinating case study of how socialism could work in a developing country, a country that was exploited for its resources. A lot of people say these are poor countries. They're not poor countries at all. They're very, very rich in terms of resources. It's just they're not at all empowered or they do not have a social contract with capital in the same way that people within the global north would say like in Europe or United States. It's simply a relationship of extraction of material wealth, often at the cost of the environment, the climate, but especially in terms of human lives and political freedom. I am really interested in the Venezuelan socialist revolution. And you know, and you say that we created Chavez and, and many people, people may be upset about my comparison of Bernie Sanders and, and Chavez for all kinds of reasons, because they are nowhere near the same whatsoever. But it's, it's fascinating to me because I often say Bernie Sanders is not about Bernie Sanders. He was about an, a reemergence of a left of a progressive voice within United States politics that was centered around one man, was centered around one person, but the kind of activist base that was cultivated around him and the kind of organizing and door knocking, all the community organizations that fed into that movement that didn't necessarily in many cases even translate to votes, but the kind of organization and sort of bringing into community, into contact with one another, these different organizations around the country is is a really big part who he is and, and also of, of what he was in 2016-2020. But I am fascinated in terms of your understanding of Venezuela. I, I really want to get an understanding, especially for the audience, to, to sort of understand Venezuela's history and also their history with their military and how essentially Venezuelans created what they understood Chavez to be. And then, of course, we'll go into what the understanding of the American political establishment and oftentimes the American yeah. people's understanding of who Chavez was. And I think there are differences between Bernie Sanders and Chavez, very important differences. But like yeah. in, in, the, in a context in which, but in a context in which Chavez is compared to Trump, 
regularly in the mainstream media. Honestly, the comparison to Bernie has a lot more to tell us, right? Um, you know, the comparison to Trump is often made. They're both populists, so-called, but they're in complete opposites in all the ways that matter, right? You know, like a white supremacist billionaire, you know, versus a poor, you know, dark-skinned kid from the Venezuelan countryside. Um, but, you know, the, the question of populism is really the key, and, and it always breaks open far more than what this individual contains, right? And this is why, again, Chavismo is way more than Chavez. The Venezuelan Revolution is way more than Chavez. Um, and, and part of what my first book, of course, sought to do was to decenter that figure and to understand him as a product rather than the creator, right? Like, he didn't make this happen. In many ways, he was the product. He then intervened in crucial ways to help uh, create space for revolutionary movements and to maintain a relationship with those movements that was important. Um, but he didn't make it happen in the same way that Bernie didn't make it happen. Um, you know, this, some of this connects, of course, to the things you were saying earlier about the New Deal, about old Democratic Party, you know, politics, which have largely been abandoned, right? In which, like, the Democratic Party today really doesn't give a shit about the countryside, doesn't give a shit about the rural areas, the so-called flyover states, and then are surprised, and then Hillary Clinton is surprised when she doesn't win them, right? And so, um, you know, and I say this not, you know, simply for that point, but to understand that, you know, Bernie Sanders was someone who was speaking a language that could have won a lot of those spaces. And, and again, I say this as someone from Maine where Bernie Sanders was someone that could have done incredibly well um, compared to a Hillary Clinton who is not trusted, who is not supported. And, and again, there's a lot of pieces here. You know, Bernie Sanders, for example, is, you know, a little soft on guns, according to the Democratic Party establishment. But that's <laughs> a where, little. That's where, I, but like, yeah. that's where I grew up, though. Like, that's where I grew up. No one's going to vote, you know. And again, I'm not saying that these questions are easy ones, but like there's an easy way in which urban Democratic Party elites just absolutely dismiss everything happening in sort of middle, so-called middle America, a middle America that we should remember is increasingly diverse, increasingly Mexican and Central American, um, and but also increasingly captured by mega churches, right-wing talk radio, right-wing political institutions. Uh, and so um, I think, you know, there's a couple of pieces. One is, well, how does populism work? How does it break open possibilities for radical change beyond an individual figure, which is crucial in both cases? But also the question of who is being included and brought into the picture. And, you know, and again, for, you know, for whatever criticisms you have, Bernie Sanders was able to speak to, uh, you know, to the Rust Belt, to poor Americans, to poor white Americans as well, in a way that, that Clinton never could. Um, you know, the Venezuelan experience is incredibly fraught at this moment complicated. The legacies are, you know, still being contested, but it was really one of the most important revolutionary movements, you know, of the past 50 or 60 years, you know, in particular, and certainly of Venezuelan history. Uh, you know, here you had the long overdue attempt for, of Venezuelan people, poor people, people of color, to really take the reins of political life in a country that, as you said, and quite rightly, is in a, and it's a great example of how rich a country is, right? Um, in terms of resources, in terms of oil wealth, but also the way that that's historically distorted um, the structure of the economy, but also made it really difficult, you know, and, and impossible to uh, to develop in, in a way that is not, you know, completely oriented around oil. And so, one of the struggles of Chavismo from the beginning, um, which was never resolved, is this question of what do you do with an extractive resource that is also your only way to survive, right, and your only way to build something different. Um, and this is one of the, you know, the, the, the tensions from the very beginning. Um, 
the idea, of course, was to invest that into the redevelopment of a socialist economy that would be sustainable, that would not need to rely on oil. And what this looked like in practice was a, you know, on the one hand, a, you know, uh, of course, a bloated uh, centralized bureaucratic state, which was the product of the oil economy, but also the proliferation of radically decentralized socialist, you know, participatory structures, democratic structures in, in what are called communal councils and communes. Yeah. And by the time that the communes are being developed, you know, after 2009 in particular, what you've got is a model for the democratic management of the economy, right? In which you and your neighbors sit down in a communal parliament and decide what needs to be produced, what, you know, how, how to arrange that production in an egalitarian way, how much people should work, what they should be paid, how to distribute that or sell the goods and, and reinvest, you know, whatever, you know, uh, profits there are into the community. And so, and again, like to be clear, this is not simply a question of we want egalitarian socialism on moral grounds. This is also the only solution to something like um, the distortions of the oil economy in which, you know, Venezuela sold oil and imported everything else, right? It was yeah. completely, as if you were to put it in this way, exogenous, like um, the entire, you know, economy was facing the global, uh, you know, uh, oil market um, and, and buying everything needed from abroad versus what came to be referred to as endogenous development. Like, what would it mean to develop uh, a formerly colonized uh, and impoverished country from within, according to criteria that are internal to the needs of the people? What would it mean for your community to decide what they need instead of going to the store and just buying whatever is being produced and imported from, you know, from other countries? You know, when the Soviet Union was initially created, for a few months, if not a year or so, there were still what were called Soviets or worker councils, democratic bodies, small d democratic bodies that were created in order to control not only the workplace, but also their communities. So instead of electing representatives in order to go to a, a sort of federal system, you would have communal councils, much like in the case of Venezuela, that were created that bring the issues of communities to a centralized place that then pass on that information and pass on ideas, even legislation to a, a, a larger body that would have authority to implement laws. In the case of the Bolshevik Revolution, unfortunately, that was immediately discarded by Lenin. That was immediately destroyed and suppressed. And other members of, because the Bolsheviks were a very small part initially, uh, a, a sort of a flash in the pan of a much larger social democratic movement within Russia that had been going on for at least about 100 years before the revolution that took place in 1917. I'm I'm really interested in your take, your understanding, because Noam Chomsky has many ideas about socialism and about what the Soviet Union meant to socialism and how Leninism is, in essence, the mirror opposite of what we would call liberal democracy in the West, which is sort of this managerial class that is going to be able to hold the rabble at bay. And they don't really have any input. They'll input every once in a while. The Soviet Union had elections too. They'll put their input in every once in a while, but they don't really have any power and they need to be kept away from it and will make sure to take care of the rest. 
but also in the case of the Soviet Union, it was a highly repressive society that had very little in the way of worker control especially direct worker control. I'm fascinated by the creation of those communal councils within Venezuela because in large part, they still exist today. I really want to give the audience an idea of what a communal council does, what it is, and how much of a change that is from something like simply just a federal body that goes about passing laws and instituting them downward um, instead of just every four years or every two years or perhaps every year going to pull a lever um, or, or, or color in a bubble, a, a very active participation in democracy and, and how that is very different from the history of Venezuela, history of capitalism largely because many people don't know, like places like Cuba, Venezuela, Jamaica, Barbados, you name it, were just vacation spots for the wealthy within America and within what and for white Americans. Yeah. And the amount of racism in particular in Cuba was extraordinary, really extraordinary, even more prominent than the U.S. South. And many people also don't understand the legacy of slavery within South America yeah. and in its extensiveness. But I really want to have an understanding of the communal councils and the the kind of shift that it was from the kind of capitalism that was within Venezuela. I mean, I will flag, you know, the fact that I, I think I probably have a slightly different read on, you know, on Lenin and on the, the at least the earliest moments. Everyone does. Of the, <laughs> you know, of the Bolshevik process. I mean, but there's also to say, like, I think Lenin was also an incredible theoretician of this. And people know this from state and revolution of the withering way of the state, of the need to confront the state and create and empower these alternatives. This is not the way that things went. And I think there are a lot of pieces involved there, including a counter-revolutionary war, including other figures, of course, whose names we know. But I, I underline it in part to say that these things are part of a war, right? They're part of a struggle. Um, and, and I say it also to, to, you know, to indicate that, for example, today, 2022 Venezuela, popular power is a lot weaker than it was a few years ago um, right. in, in relation to the state. And that has everything to do with the same exact questions, right? You know, the, you know, the degree to which U.S. imperialism imposes its will um, and enforces sanctions and it does all these absolutely brutal and inhuman things, it also strengthens the hand of those more authoritarian elements within the Bolivarian revolution of the military. You know what I mean? Like, so the, these become part yes. of the equation yeah. in a way that, of course, they did as well in the Soviet Union. And one of the most important pieces of the Soviet legacy was precisely to support those revolutionary anti-racist movements globally, which even, you know, even well into the period in which the, you know, the Soviet experiment itself was showing great deficiencies, it was still the only force globally supporting these anti-colonial struggles uh, in a, you know, I won't say consistent way, but but on some level. Um, the, and, you know, and, and, you know, it's important to think about the ways in which there was a vision for this kind of council society. In Venezuela, this emerged kind of organically. Of course, people had known about what had happened, you know, in, you know, the Soviet experience, but also people, you know, were drawing upon local indigenous, you know, 
African collective structures. They were drawing upon other histories, alternative histories. They were reading different sort of elements of the leftist tradition. And then they were reading Latin American revolutionaries like, like Jose Carlos Mariategui and others and incorporating that vision for an indigenous, you know, for example, an indigenous socialism to be a part of this, you know, equation. And so this process of decolonizing those communal structures is really a part of it. And it's a part of how this vision develops. This is, you know, sort of deep history of the Venezuelan armed struggle, the period running up to the first coup by Chavez and others in 1992, which fails, but which had already developed a vision and laid out uh, blueprints for how to rearrange, you know, society on communal lines, right? In which you know, local local barrios and neighborhoods would be organized into their own councils and then, um, you know, schools and universities and the students would have their councils and the workers would have their councils and indigenous people and they would all be part of this confederated structure, um, you know, uh, in, you know, in which the centralized state would not need to uh, exist in the way that it does. So that was this this kind of vision uh, of what that would look like. Um, ultimately, it came from a different direction, which was through um, the government um, and through the instant the sort of institutionalization from above of councils. When you know, in in conjunction with forces from below that had been informally developing these participatory structures for years. Um, and what's important to note, especially as you're talking in, in relation to sort of uh, liberal democracies, that you've got, you know, communal councils developed first, which are political institutions for participation. Um, people are able to come together on your local neighborhood and decide what kind of projects need to be developed and, and planned, um, what the priorities of the community are. But they were still passing that information upward toward the government for funding, for resources, right? And they would be able to collectively carry out some of those projects, but they needed the money and they needed the funding from above. A few years later, though, when these began to expand and joined together into broader communes, and specifically because communes also involved the incorporation of these productive units, factories, workplaces, you began to have a different kind of situation in which some of these communes were getting to be closer to economically self-sufficient, right? They were, right. you know, developing, producing things that they needed, or they were developing and producing a surplus of, say, corn. I'm thinking of this large commune known as Almaisal, producing corn that then they, they could sell and use as a resource to sustain the commune, to to you know fund the community um, and you know and so you do begin to see a situation in which you know again in in contrast to liberal democracy this was a democracy that was not only direct and participatory in its mechanisms but was also substantive economically right one of the main deficiencies of liberal democracy that make it a failed enterprise from the very jump is the fact that it's purely political and refuses any responsibility for the social or economic questions, right? In other words, equality exists in the United States on paper because of, you know, the equal individual right to participate in politics, right? In, in a very limited right. way. Right. Um, there's no right, there's no positive right to not be poor or not starve or to have housing, you know, these, and so right. the, this is the kind of, when you try to bring together the economic and the political in terms of direct democracy, that also promises uh, social equality. You're doing something dramatically different, and that's, of course, socialism and, and, and you know, in an attempt to, to develop and to, to manage that. And so it's really so dramatically different. It's not liberal democracy with social welfare it's right. far more participatory and far more ambitious in the in the sort of positive right to egalitarianism that it entails 
Right. And it's this understanding, and I'm a Chomskyite myself. I'm just, I'm very anti-authoritarian. And I, in many ways, I accept his understanding of history and a lot and much of his analysis. You know, he's not God, but I understand and and empathize very much so with when it comes to a an anti-authoritarian mode of socialism. And I totally understand a lot of people are, you know, a lot of people defend Lenin. <laughs> a lot of people defend the Soviet Union. And I understand the historical reasons behind that. I get it, you know, for myself personally. The idea and definitely in his writings in State and Revolution when it comes to the, quote unquote the withering of the state, there were institutions around or slightly before he wrote that that piece that were in that society that were bringing about that sort of change. But his understanding yes. of what he would call Marxism did not call for that at that time, that somehow the progression of history wasn't quite ready for that. And therefore, the state needed to come in and, and do those sorts of things. So I'll get into that here in just a minute. There's a reason why I mentioned that. The freedoms that we discuss on a regular basis, the freedom from and the freedom to, right? A freedom from ignorance, a freedom from illness, freedom from poverty, the freedom from oppression from a state are things that we understand. You know, in the United States, generally kind of all packed within the First Amendment, we have a freedom from persecution from the state when it comes to religious observation or practice, freedom from the the oppressiveness of the state when it comes to being able to speak against the state, freedom from oppression when it comes to the press in terms of what they were able to publish. And of course, all of these ideas were immediately tested, immediately tested right out of the gate in terms of everyday people, even elites themselves challenging one another when it comes to the press, when it comes to speech, Alien and Sedition Acts, the, the incident between Benjamin Franklin and his brother and, uh, and other members of the quote unquote group of founding fathers come to mind when it comes to speech in the press. But those ideas were immediately tested. And I think it's also really important that we understand political movements as the, the product and also, I guess you say in dialect, the product of, but also the creators of at the same time, social movements. People are at the heart of all of this and people have faults. People um, are at the heart of these institutions and people react in and understand the world react to and understand the world in different ways, especially these direct democratic councils that you're speaking of, these these communal councils and this sort of larger growth into what we would understand as communes are interesting because they are they have such a stark contrast to what was before, which is a very brutal, very top down, very racist, exploitative mode of capitalism that came in and was interested in pumping as much oil out as possible of Venezuela, a few other resources, but essentially leaving the people who are not working for the oil company or the ancillary industries around that for dead. They just weren't interested in developing that. And those people are not supposed to have any sort of wants of the state, not supposed to have any sort of political freedoms, not supposed to have economic needs or needs of development. They are supposed to just sort of sit in the background as insofar as U.S. imperialism or that mode of capitalism is concerned. I am really fascinated by this move towards direct democracy in terms of being able to control resources on the local level and understanding the kind of projects that 
localities need because we often point to the federal government, even sometimes our state governments in terms of what's wrong, in terms of what's going on in our lives or in our political lives. But so much, especially in the United States, when it comes to our understanding of federalism, anything that's not the federal government's responsibility is the state government. Anything the state doesn't do is down to the local. And whatever money you do or don't have is what you have to do. And we often see the results in the form of property taxes, which the Australians dealt with in a big way. They just decided we're going to put it on a federal level and it's getting funded regardless of what the wealth level is around you in terms of income or property. But I am interested because in the United States on the local level, so much needs to get done and so many decisions that impact our lives in terms of policing, in terms of economic development, in terms of in terms of development when it comes to housing, in terms of development when it comes to power stations or the quality of water, all come from or an access to educational institutions and, and how good they are is all based in the local governments and the idea that direct democracy could come into play, direct, the idea that direct democracy instead of your local city council making those decisions is very appealing for anyone who would be looking for the sort of world that we would be in the form of direct democracy. So I say that to say I I, I do want to begin by sort of addressing policing, which is, you know, your latest book. I really want to understand your view of policing as an institution and its function in a capitalist system to go about protecting the rights of property instead of actually looking for justice. Because I because I know that you you bring up some very shocking statistics in the book, like, you know, police in many parts of the country only solve about two percent of crimes, (laughs) you know, and and how arrests in terms and locking people up doesn't actually do anything for public safety. It doesn't actually do anything to solve the problems that cause those incidents to, to occur. And I'm really interested in your view and your understanding of the introduction of direct democracy is a counterweight, is the antidote to something like policing. There's obviously a lot of pieces to it. For people who think it's not possible, I mean, you've got organizations like Cooperation Jackson, you know, in Jackson, Mississippi, building directly on many different models, but including the Venezuelan model, including this question of developing communal councils and communes and what that would look like in the U.S. context, how to build that power, how to build that local production, cooperative economics together, and do so in a way that's not just a little sort of enclave of progressivism, but which aspires to real power, right? And, you know, one of the main demands of organizations like Cooperation Jackson is real, true, binding oversight of the police. I mean, pending abolition, right? Um, but, but you know, not a this kind of sort of civilian oversight board that has no power, but really the, the ability of community members to hire and fire abusive cops and to rethink ultimately what that institution looks like, how it functions and who it serves. Because when you ask, what do the police do in a capitalist society? You know, if you look globally, not just in the U.S., they do two fundamental things, right? One, of course, which people often mention, is that they protect property. It's very obvious. It's very visceral. It it should be remembered, though, and it also, I think it's worth people thinking about the ways that they, they see the police doing so in everyday life, right? When you see the police clearing homeless encampments today or when you see the police start to show up increasingly in gentrifying neighborhoods, they're literally, literally doing the work of property 
property developers, right? Because those property developers uh, donate to political campaigns, lean on local city councils, lean on the political apparatus, and create pressure for the police to do exactly that. This is not this is a mechanical relationship in terms of protecting property and the aspirations, not just property, but further accumulation, right? We're not just talking about people who have money. We're talking about people who are trying to make more and more of it, right? So they serve, in, in, again, in a very mechanical way, you know, the sort of capitalist, you know, uh, class. Often more overlooked is the sort of racial and colonial component of policing. And this is not just a U.S. thing. It's actually a global question. Um, policing from the very beginning, professional policing, you know, has been uh, deeply inflected with with white supremacy and colonial domination. You know, the, you know, the debates and people say, well... U.S. police in the South descended from slave patrols, which is true, but then other people try to say, but in the North, they were adapted from the metropolitan police model from the U.K., but then when you look at the U.K. model, what you find is that the UK, you know, model of professional policing was designed for colonial domination in Ireland, right? And, and uh, you know, the, the direct connection between colonialism and policing, whether it's sort of U.S. Marines intervening in Nicaragua or Haiti or the Philippines, all of these, you know, the people that were creating the police forces around those times were all, you know, veterans of these campaigns. They all saw the military structure as the key to understand policing. They all saw the, uh, you know, particularly communities of color and poor communities as target populations, insurgents that needed to be dealt with um, on the, along the lines of counterinsurgency. Um, and again, this goes globally to the point where we have very, you know, complicated situations, say in Venezuela or China or, you know, you know, lots of other places, Israel and, and Palestine, where it's really not that hard to find that ultimately police are still doing both of those things, right? And so that's the kind of thing that we need to understand. It's about property. It's also about, you know, white supremacy and racial control, which is, of course, about labor. It's about ensuring cheap labor, domesticated, uh, you know, uh, docile labor force. It's also about fear. This is incredibly clear in the U.S. context where um, policing is very much about, you know, making white people less scared um, and, you know, using that as a further lever for like the, the sort of splitting of whatever forces of solidarity might, you know, exist, leveraging police, leveraging racial fear as a way to the police, this role in the upholding of capitalist accumulation, of this, you know, dramatic inequality, uh, you know, of wealth um, that, you know, that many people experience to the point where you've got, you know, poor white people dying, you know, in record numbers from opioid overdoses and still voting for more police, still, still racist as hell. Um, and, and that's really a tremendous, <laughs> uh, it's a tremendous accomplishment of this sort of capitalist police sort of apparatus to be able to convince people that the police are on their side when they're so sort of obviously not. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it brings in a stark contrast, especially when it comes to the to the opioid epidemic. The idea that larger police budgets, that police carrying Narcan, is going to be the solution to that problem is just wild. And it's also it, it's sort of this understanding of of how capitalism works because police are there to sort of patch up the ship, as it were, uh, as the holes are opening up, as the leaks are springing. That there's not yeah. this ability, that there's not this understanding that you're 
reacting to problems that capitalism is creating, and particularly when it comes to the opioid epidemic. I mean, the fact that the Sacklers were able to convince the FDA, it's like, no, you know, these opioids, they're not particularly addictive. You know, they don't, they, they don't need any special scrutiny by the FDA or doctors or anyone. We can just print them and, and sell them to as many people as we'd like. And the amount of people who have become dependent on these as the kind of desolation that capitalism begins to wreak in those communities and I don't want to I don't I really want to bring this down as to earth as possible I want to make sure this is concrete and material as possible the kind of abandonment of capitalism the, the sort of 1950s ideal in all of our minds it's a white supremacist ideal for sure yes, but, but but this sort of ideal of a, a community capitalism whereby shops shop owners can open a shop run it for 20 30 years pass on to their kids or close shop or run it until they die because a community is being served sort of this understanding that capitalism doesn't have to be exploitative of you as a consumer in terms of its actions on a personal level not on a systemic level but that betrayal by capitalist america that deindustrialization the neoliberalism the financialization of the economy leaves out so much of the rural population as a means to be quote unquote financialized and that and that financialization doesn't equate into growth or development but feeds into what we would understand as gdp growth it grows in terms of what can be quote unquote productive in terms of earning more profit and being able to expand what we would define as capital, even if that capital is just money or assets, even if that profit is simply the, the product of speculation, just this entire leaving out of that sector of the economy. And also the abandonment, as you said, rightly, of the Republican and Democratic parties of the rural voters. Of, of rural people, the abandonment, the political abandonment of them is paired with this understanding of policing, whereby police are going yeah. to solve this issue with Narcan. Police are going to be able to solve this issue with investigations and busting different meth shops that are around, and that'll solve our problem instead of looking into why do we have lead in the water? Why isn't there? That's the thing. I mean, I mean, I think you're putting it exactly right, which is that, the, and, the, and the two go very much in parallel. When you said this sort of vision, this 1950s vision of capitalism, right? I mean, the easy answer, of course, to that is that, I mean, and it's slightly, that's a slightly social democratic vision, right? The idea, again, the idea that what you need to do is sort of slightly, you know, redistribute wealth in a slightly different way or have a local capitalism or small business owner capitalism. And, you know, uh, I mean, the first and very easy response to that is that there's, there's no such thing, right? Or, you know, or that the only way that such a thing would be, you know, possible is for it not really to be capitalism, right? For the state to say, listen, no one can accumulate, you know, wealth on the level of billionaires um, and we're going to have a restricted, you know, limited capitalist economy because otherwise, and there's a lot of people, maybe sympathetic people who think that, you know, that small business is good and large business is bad, right? Or that, you know, it's okay to be a small capitalist, but like Walmart is the problem. But they don't understand that Walmart and Amazon are the the telos, right? The the outcome of how capitalist economics work. And the, the question here is very, very simple, right? Which is capitalists want to accumulate more wealth. 
and they will use not only that, but they want they will use that wealth to influence political power in a way that allows them to accumulate more wealth and accumulate more political power. And so, unless you have some kind of mechanism that puts a break on that, you know what Marx would understand is the centralization and conglomeration of the capitalist economy. It right. will continue unchecked, right? And so, you know, you've got this situation which, and this is one of the tensions of libertarianism, is that they think that you know there's a good capitalism and it's just you know, but like they also don't like the state, right? And so I'm sorry to say that like this isn't the way it has to be, but you know, throughout history, the main mechanism for checking capitalist you know accumulation of wealth has been the state. You know, it has been say sort of monopoly laws and things like this, right? In other places, of course, these are even stricter. And if you look at sort of like early or late medieval history, you have moments in which you know entire societies decide that they're going to like periodically yeah. destroy wealth as a way of preventing the accumulation, uh, you know, of that kind of power. Um, so, I mean, that's a, a circuitous way of saying like it's not a social democratic question of let's have a good capitalism and distribute the wealth better. It's a structural a structural understanding of the fact that this is what capitalism does. And the reason I say that you're, I think, absolutely right to pair that with the question of policing is because it's the same exact thing. And I think this is like this meme going around that, you know, says something similar to this. It's like, they're not, and it's a very important point because it gets to the social, again, the social democratic critique of policing, which is, oh, like the police have all this money. We should be using that money instead for schools or for community, whatever. And the, and that's true. But the point is to say they're not funding the police um, at the expense of social welfare, right? They're funding the police because they're not funding social welfare, right? And because right. those police are necessary and required to manage the contradictions of that absence of any kind of welfare, right? Like th these are not, again, the point is not a redistributive one, the point is a structural one. And when you look at it structurally, you realize that, again, it's not an accident. It's not like, you know, and this is sort of like AOC's kind of narrative around policing is like, defunding looks like the suburbs, right? Fully resourced communities and so but again the structural view is that the suburbs are literally the segregational the segregationist project you know of wealth via policing right there's no such thing as the suburbs without police can't just take away some of those funds and, and transfer them and, and think that you've done something or or think again you should defund the police but you should understand that what you're doing is creating a contradiction for what policing is and what it does and that is a political contradiction it's not a redistributive one I mean, especially when it comes to, I don't want to go too far in on that because I don't want to repeat too much, but it's especially when it comes to, because capitalism is not a democratic force. You know, Marx might have said that it's it's certainly a revolutionary force, but it is not a, a democratic force. In its basis, capital and hierarchical institutions are not based on democracy, lowercase d democracy. Building strong communities, the subtitle of, or, or the very least strong, strong communities, are the antidote to police, or at the very least, they are the solution to being able to make the police obsolete, is is an understanding that that I think is not really the lines are not drawn well, and those lines not being drawn well is really something that I I want to make sure that I get concretely because there are many discussions that I have with community members within Richmond, uh, between activists, city council yeah. members, city council candidates, or state legislators, whereby there are so many different understandings of what that slogan means, and it's so open to interpretation that I think what needs to be central to it is the understanding that exactly as you stated, that 
police are there not as a product of you know golly gosh gee we don't quite have enough money therefore we gotta we gotta be able to to give police sniper rifles you know what are they gonna do with that mraps you know how do you solve a sexual assault without an m4 like i i don't understand it, it is due to the fact that we are not going about solving those problems or, or, or trying to go about solving the contradictions of capitalism, this incredible wealth around that's created that is solely there to be capital, to be able to create enormous amounts of further wealth instead of actually going about enriching the communities that they come from, their stakeholders. So I, 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 I sort of want to put a, a, a point on that. I further want to sort of have a discussion about some of the controversies that you had on on Twitter because, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a firebrand on Twitter. I, I literally say not necessarily whatever comes to my mind, but exactly what I think. And in particular, a few years ago, you had these tweet. You had a few tweets out regarding white genocide, and many people. And unfortunately, when it comes to text and when it comes to Reddit and Twitter, irony, sarcasm is not available through Google Translate. Unfortunately, it can't be conveyed unless usually you're able to see and hear someone. And the entire point of your tweet, All I Want for Christmas is White Genocide, is is this idea that Santa and white genocide are equivalent in their existence, are equivalent in their seriousness because they do not exist. And on top of that, I, I, I saw that interview between you and Tucker Carlson where, where Tucker Carlson just seemed heartbroken <laughs> that you were like, it's a good thing that white people were being killed in the Haitian Revolution. The, the thing is, is like the understanding, the American understanding, especially the white supremacist understanding of who these white people were, it's just like, oh my God, they were slave owners. You know, we can all come around the table, you know, kumbaya, you know, it was wrong of me to sell your kids away and to be able to, you know, beat you and, and not be able to, you not being able to control your own lives. You know, we can all come around the table and have a decent discussion at the end of the day, you know? It's just is not, just is not understanding of what slavery was, of what slavery is, and the kind of capitalism that is, and the need at that moment to end that kind of political system. In that case, it's in particular by any means necessary. I, I've tweeted before, I had this conversation with Dr. Misha Sinha that I think it was an incredible mistake by Abraham Lincoln and Reconstruction that all slave owners within the South were not executed or incarcerated. And on top of that, that and every Confederate official, and especially everyone who should have been executed for treason, period, on those, on those grounds alone. And I'm not a f in favor of the death penalty. But I think it's just this. I mean, we're, yeah, and we're talking, I mean, that's why people are still talking about like second reconstruction, third reconstruction, right? Like, you know, that's why people are still talking about abolition, right? Because we're talking about an unfinished project. We're talking about a right. project for the total reconstruction of society um, that also involved that piece of, you know, and again, like, I think we have a lot of things to reckon with as people who believe, you know, for example, we're talking about the withering away of the state, you know, as people who believe in that and who believe in anti-state politics, as I think we both do, reconstruction was a military dictatorship yes. enforced by the federal government. Yes. And I think it's important to, you know, reckon with that. I don't think, and by reckon with, I mean, 
these are the kinds of things that we need to understand and think hard about and understand why they're necessary and understand what it would right. take to to really bring about radical change you know desegregation was a federal imposition with troops right yep. like this is you know and it's been the federal government that you know no matter how much i dislike the federal government has in this country been the only force that's been able to make these things possible right that's not to say there's other kinds of force and it's not to say that we couldn't understand force in a different kind of way um right. because say for example when you say reconstruction was a military dictatorship it also involves armed black militias right right that were the first target of the clan right the clan knew um that it had to disarm you know black self-defense and that's a permanent project in the u.s is to disarm black self-defense so i mean there's different ways of understanding that force in terms of you know the broader questions, I think they have a, a lot in common, and I don't think necessarily that it's strictly the case that sort of polite society wants to have a conversation with slavers or have a conversation either with you know Nazis and white supremacists. I think part of it has been this struggle over the recent years, this you know particularly in the Trump years, over what we understand as analogous to slavery and in uh, Nazism. That probably doesn't sound very clear yet, but when you you know I'll put it a slightly different way, which is to say that. I think there is a legacy in the United States that can be tapped that says, you know what, slavery is bad and should be destroyed. I think if you can code something explicitly as slavery, I think people will understand that it needs to be destroyed, or enough people will, right? Just like if you can code, and this was happening a lot around the whole alt-right stuff, if you can code, code something as Nazis and is neo-Nazi, you know, uh, again, like I used to always say, my grandfather, you know, used to kill Nazis. Um, I don't say that because he was a particularly sort of radical person, but just because this is something that can also be tapped in terms of understanding even mainstream Americans what is and is not acceptable as uh, you know political uh, orientation right we don't have to accept that shit it should be rooted out it should be destroyed you know and of course those tweets and those conversations were all a part of this moment of reckoning um, and it's a moment in which unfortunately the people that you know among us who had been more aware of these questions and tracking them longer and paying attention to these movements longer were really exposed to a lot of hate and even just like opposition and sort of naysaying from liberal uh, elites um, over the fact that, you know, well, these aren't real Nazis. This is just this is political speech and Trump is fine or he's just a normal political actor. And what's very interesting, of course, is that now six years later, we're in a situation in which the liberal apparatus has come around and decided that essentially that we were right the whole time right and it took something like trump in general but it took january 6th in particular for them to realize that white supremacist organizing is a problem that it is right. and the FBI not had no idea right homeland security had no idea that was going on <laughs> no <laughs> but just day, to, i find I mean, that incredible like, i just i find the that incredible yeah the recognition is premised on the fact that their maneuver is a maneuver right. to embrace the institutions right right and they were doing this before january 6th right when fbi the fbi was going to save us from trump right the fbi was going to the supreme court was going to save us you know the um and then and then january 6th of course is you know it, it, on the one hand it's good 
good to have this recognition of the danger of these forces, but on the other hand, they're only recognized as anti-state forces or anti-institution forces because they attack the institutions, right? I mean, I'm, again, like, <laughs> I like to say, like, a big, big in insurrection fan over here, you know, like, the problem of January 6th was not that it was an insurrection at all. The problem is that it was a white supremacist mob attack. And, and, and so that's, you know, I, I don't, you know, but for liberals, of course, the problem is that it was an attack on the holy and hallowed institutions of American democracy, which, of course, are themselves incredibly rotten and incredibly racist. So, yeah, no, it's been an interesting few years that we've been moved through. And for me, that meant getting sort of basically thrown out of academia, um, sort of probably forever, um, working on other <laughs> things, you know, kind of. It's like always the good sign when they drag you cooking and screaming. I mean, that's I mean, that's especially if you if you stay on message. I mean, yeah, yeah right. No, exactly. And it's uh, and so it's definitely been a wild few years on a personal level, incredibly, honestly, traumatic, fucked up bunch of years on my end. But, uh, you know, that doesn't again, that doesn't. I mean, if anything, that tells you that the politics are right. If anything, that tells you that you're, right. you know, you're, yep. you know, you're putting your, you're touching yeah. the third rail because right. it's electrifying. Um, yep. And so, you know, that's, you know, again, I think one of the main tasks today is to prevent this Democratic Party um, closure around the institutions. Um, and that is, is it's, all, it's what the Democrats will always do, right? Is to, you know, is to close around the institutions. Of course, people are becoming more disillusioned by the day, by the institutional structure. There's less, of course, less and less faith that the Supreme Court is anything but what it is, which is a reactionary institution that should not be, I mean, that this should not be relied upon for any kind of change, right? It's a rear guard institution that seeks to prevent change. That's what the Supreme Court is designed to do. Um, and unless there's a radical, you know, um, intervention, meaning like radical stacking of the court or something like that, the Supreme Court won't do anything but prevent change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's the thing really about American institutions. And I think we should sort of, those are kind of the, the final two sections I want to move into it is, is sort of your excommunication from academia. There were several moves by right-wingers in the United States, which is really incredible to me. You know, these people were dead... For, for for years, they were dedicated to this idea that free speech on campus was like the animating topic of American politics, that this was the crisis that our democracy faced, which was that these liberal kids were getting around and creating these spaces that excluded white males and excluded reactionary ideas. And therefore, the democracy, the, the, the republic was in peril. And this is what we needed to legislate. This is what we needed to go after. And of course, this is after decades of private capital institutions and right wing think tanks and organizations buying out so many different public institutions, let alone private institutions of thought. And instead trying to produce thought and research and and therefore people and ideas that were based around this idea that the capitalist system is great. There's no need to question it. American institutions need some tweaking here and there, or perhaps even better, we need to make them more anti-democratic, more repressive, and that there doesn't need to be any sort of thought generated or any sort of ideas generated from the academic tradition and 
history that need to go about criticizing the state and criticizing our economic development. I am really interested. I know you had mentioned that it was definitely it was definitely fucked up from from, from my perspective. And you said it was traumatic insofar as, as you'd like to go into detail. I'm really interested in your journey out of academia, given the kind of statements that you were making and also the kind of ideas that you were pushing and that North Star of yours that was just like, you know, I'm going to continue doing this regardless of what the consequences would be in terms of my career. Because someone like Noam Chomsky was able to keep his position at MIT because of his prominence in the field of linguistics. And even, you know, up until a few years ago, even he left MIT and has now gone to Arizona State University. I am fascinated by your, essentially your casting out, your excommunication from American academia. And then I do want to go into January 6th and Donald Trump because January 6th, I, I think is a fascinating January 5th and January 6th are a fascinating duality within the South. You know, we've talked about reconstruction. I'll get to that in a second, but yeah, let's just focus on, you, you know, that question of, of your excommunication. Yeah, no, and it's, it's been a complicated thing, you know, and it's been many years now of being forced out and then being prevented from re-entering. Um, it's, you know, and I try to explain this in a Facebook post and sort of over the years, I've like developed like a, a sort of feel for this way that the academic blacklist has worked, right? And it's a very subtle thing. It's the ways that your work is discredited. I mean, my work is good. Everyone knows my work is good. I have five books and I'm not getting interviewed for jobs that you know, you know, where the people have no books who are judging, you know, you know judging the, the candidates and the people that they're hiring have no books and, and very, you know, little work, you know, of, of substance, certainly. Um, and, you know, and it's it's been, a, you know, again, a very subtle thing, a very complicated thing. It involves all levels of the university where administrators don't want to interview people or hire people who are potentially controversial. And this all speaks to what's really happening, right, which is that the structures of the university have not that they were ever perfect but have been transformed dramatically um, and have become ever more subject, as you hinted at, to private money, right? And as you said, right, this is public universities as well, right? If anything, public universities are... You know, they're subject to, to state level pressure, but also, you know, very much subject to what little, you know, private funding is helping to make up for the cuts to public funding. Right. Um, and we I think we, you know, talk a lot about the ways in which this creates a sort of neoliberalization of, you know, adjunct labor. We talk less about the political impact of that. Right. Which is that adjuncts are not only cheap, but they're easily controllable. Right. If they say something out of line or if they create a controversy, they're easy to not renew, right? They don't get fired. They, they are not renewed. And so some of the cases of people who have been attacked in academia have been less high profile because they had no job security and they just simply disappeared. Um, and, and, you know, so you've got always that sort of... Uh, you know, the, the impact of the private money um, as, you know, uh, creating a situation of disempowerment and, you know, pushing back on those who would speak differently. You also have that private money upholding and platforming um, right-wing institutions and speakers and the speaking tours of Charles Murray and others, um, or the right-wing institutions that are being built within academic institutions, even public ones, where someone shows up with millions of dollars and creates a think tank. Um, which then gets to masquerade as objective or scientific or academic when it's actually simply a right 
right-wing black money think tank, and this is happening everywhere. And then on top of all of that, you've got the private money of, you know, trustees, donors, um, and alumni to, uh, you know, of universities who, if they don't like something that's happening at the university, they will withhold their millions of dollars. And all of that creates a powerful veto over speech, and not even speech, but creativity and political dedication and, you know, mobilization. And, 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 and it really creates uh, a, 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 you know, a much worse situation than even already existed within uh, academia. Um, probably what's worst about academia, though, is the fact that this is all becomes this internalized, uh, you know, just sort of mealy-mouthed liberalism where academics, tenured academics themselves don't even realize that they're sitting in the sort of boiling water and the temperatures, you know, increasing gradually over time. And so they themselves embrace their own respectability politics. They embrace their own position um, and they are utterly oblivious to what's happening all around them. They don't stand up for others. They don't stand up for even me, a tenured professor. They don't stand up for adjuncts, certainly. They don't stand up for workers. They don't stand up for students when their students are being, you know, actively harmed, as is the case with a law professor here over here at UPenn, Amy Wax, uh, you know, who, who's just said overtly white supremacist things. And now is playing the victim because they want to discipline her when how on earth could you be an educator you know explicitly has said negative things about the abilities of her students of color to perform well right um you know so you've got all of these things happening and, and academia um has really you know gone downhill incredibly quickly i'm hoping to be fully done with it soon um and uh you know and uh, you know keep your eyes peeled for what that might look like in the aftermath but and uh, you know my my hats off to people who are still struggling, but really struggling, not just getting by, um, but people who are in academia and using that to do good radical work. Um, and there are too few of them, right? There are too many who themselves, who silence themselves to try to avoid, you know, uh, raising the ire of the officials. And it's as the great comrade Stephen Salida once put it, if you're waiting to be a radical until you get tenure, you're not going to be a radical after you have tenure. Yeah, because you're not keeping it for very long. <laughs> you know, I no, but you're also not gonna you become you, you internalize it. You become part of that. You you embrace the logics of it and then you are you just you just one of them. Especially in the case of liberals. Jesus Christ. Especially in the case of liberals they are very mealy mouthed in their critiques of power. It it almost seems as though that they are I guess you could say radical because they have some level of critique of a system. They don't go that far. And it's because they don't go that far that they're able to keep their positions. It's the reason why they're respected. If you go too much further, you're seen as a radical. It's too much. You, know, you can't have those. You can't have that many questions and all the rest of this. That is is really the center of it. And I, and I think there's really a discussion to be had about academic freedom and about the needs of public university, even if they are publicly funded because of, you know, the overarching capitalist system, the kind of conversation that we had yesterday of the kind of funding that those institutions need, but do not get and the kind of funding that they want to attract uh, from private individuals and other so-called private companies that would do partnerships or sponsorships or invest a certain amount of money, you know, are going to help them build this new building over here or fund this new study program or put money into the capital fund, make a donation, things like that. The administration of a university don't want to be in a position where 
they are considered too controversial or are considered too critical of power systems, whatever they may be in the state or in the economic sphere, or even in the so-called private sphere, if they're too critical of those that they won't attract the kind of funding that they'd like. I do want to have this conversation with you about Donald Trump, because I know that we had discussed earlier that people have compared Hugo Chavez, Donald Trump. It's just, I think that's a bit far. I think that's, I think that's a stretch, but okay, guys. And I had this conversation with Dr. Adam Ewing about the duality of January 5th, which are black people in Georgia coming out in force for, I wouldn't even say for, but against a right-wing white supremacist, overtly anti-democratic political party in the form of the Republican Party. Not only did Donald Trump take the Republican Party because he doesn't have any policy differences with them, and largely it seems he doesn't have any ideological differences with them. All, all of the critiques of him were mainly having to do with style. I mean, they, he could have just read a book on style in terms of writing or, or speech writing, and, and he would have been okay in their book. You know, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and others may have criticisms of Donald Trump, but fundamentally, in terms of policy, these guys are in lockstep. They do not at all differentiate, uh, you know, whatsoever. People like Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton might be even worse than Donald Trump in terms of policy if they were able to get their hands on that level of executive power. I'm really interested in getting your analysis, your understanding of that moment, because Donald Trump is literally, and we knew this at the time, literally calling Governor Kemp's office in Georgia, literally calling the registrar, Secretary of State, trying to get them to quote unquote, find 10,000 votes, like find me 20,000 votes here in order so that I can win. Expel these number of votes, these voter rolls, purge them, do something essentially to be able to get me into office. This guy is literally coming up with slates of electors that are not legitimate, that the state legislatures around the country do not have the power to be able to empower and send to Washington. He wants to be able to do that in order to maintain power. And it is that understanding that at that moment, it was the understanding that democracy had expanded too much for white supremacy. Democracy was too big that it, it no longer served the functions that the, as Manisha Sinha would say, that Jacksonian democracy was this white man's democracy. But Calhoun saw that as that is just too much. That's just too much. It is going to work against slavery, allowing more and more people to come into it because not many people understand the, the stratification, the hierarchy of a slave economy and a slave society in that white people Within that slave society, if you're not a slave owner or you're not working on a plantation or you're not working with those materials, you don't have any sort of means to make your living because you're competing with free labor on a mass scale. And so those part sections of society are left to what are known as mudsill classes. And they essentially are known as dirt eaters because they literally do not have the funding. They literally do not have access to resources in order to be able to, to, to feed and and develop themselves. I am really, that's a great, that's a great point. I was going to bring up the mudsill question when you were describing it that way. Um, I talk a little bit about that in, in my newest book, which is called Anti-Colonial Eruptions, um, about the the fact that the figure of the mudsill kind of tacitly unifies slaves with poor whites. Um, the problem, of course, is that it's fed into an ideology of distinction, which is premised on rejecting that very same insight that you just pointed to, right? Poor whites competing with free labor. Like, that was never the understanding, unfortunately. The understanding was 
that poor whites would be competing with free blacks, right? That was the the lie that was told. That was the lie that was told to, uh, you know, prevent a united opposition to slavery because they said, well, right. if you free all these slaves, then they're going to be competing for your jobs. Well, listen, they're already driving down wages. Right. They're already destroying. If you're Southern white, they're destroying your possibility of having any kind of work. Um, but, and I, and I often like to point out that this is exactly the same lie that's told about migrants today, right? And even yeah. some sectors of the sort anti-migrant so-called left will repeat this shit, which is that we need borders to protect labor. <laughs> borders segment labor and they make it easier for labor to, dis to be disciplined, right? Um, the fact, not the fact of migration, but the fact of criminalized migration in the U.S. drives down wages for everyone. And that's all that's been shown, you know, multiple times. Um, but it's precisely the sort of Steve Bannons and the Stephen Millers who want to, you know, within the Trump coalition, use that as a way to recruit a sector of Latinx and, and the sector of black working class populations to the right, right, um, under the banner of economic nationalism, luckily without a lot of success. But that's the, the sort of strategy. And it builds on this old lie, again, that's told about, uh, you know, about uh, about slavery. You know, um, I think the Trump phenomenon is really uh, interesting revealing um counterintuitive in a lot of ways and i think you've pointed to some of these things and i'll try to be quick you know the the fact that you know again, again you said this very clearly like mike pence is is a sort of christo fascist fundamentalist like he he would not you know be someone that i would want anywhere near uh you know the the levers of power um and yet he's being now upheld as a sympathetic defender of the of the institutions um there's this obsessive, you know, uh, focus on form over, you know, uh, content, right, in which Trump broke with the so-called democratic norms, right? Again, this is what the Democratic Party wanted to say even before January 6th, because that, that, was, that was the problem, right? Norms do not protect actual democracy. Norms protect democracy from the people, right? Um, and, you know, the last thing that I would ever, you know, like the last thing I would complain about when it comes to Trump is that he was violating democratic norms. Um, you know, uh, and, you know, to, again, to fall back on those norms is like falling back on the FBI or the Supreme Court. And, like, the norms will never save democracy. Um, you know, and this gets, of course, back to this question of Trump and, and populism. You know, Trump and Hugo Chavez, which, again, share little to nothing um, except the ways in which populism is a way of breaking out of norms, right, of expanding, um, you know, possibilities. You know, in the case of Trump, of course, these are right-wing possibilities. They are, these are sort of like even tendentially fascist uh, possibilities. Um, but, you know, it's precisely the breaking out of the institutions that's necessary, right? Um, and so, unfortunately, what this means, I think, is that it, we need to be very... Um, diligent about how we contest the meaning of Trump. Like, I would rather not talk about this dude ever again, of course. Yeah. Um, but, but the problem is that he is being mobilized. And these hearings, of course, are, are playing into it, even if, you know, I'm, I'm kind of indifferent, like if they try to lock him up, cool. Um, but he is being mobilized, you know, as a figure who then becomes the sort of bete noir that allows us to, to revitalize the American institutional structure, right? That's the maneuver that we need to resist, right? Um, and again, it's a, it's a question of content over form. 
like the problem with Trump was not that he broke norms. The problem with January 6th was not that it was an insurrection, right? We want insurrections that break norms, right? We want attacks on the institutions. Um, what we don't want are white supremacist mobs encouraging a return to a, a sort of overtly white supremacist form of America, of particularly American clan fascism. Like we definitely don't want that, right? But I mean, and I don't not to belabor the point, but the but but the case is precisely that we are being that there is a containment maneuver being carried out right now. And again, this containment maneuver has everything to do with, with George Floyd, too. It has everything to do with the fact that the extra institutional forces were strong on the right and on the left. Right? There are fascists marching in the streets, and there are anti-fascists fighting with them, and there are mass rebellions that are threatening the foundational structures of American policing and white supremacy. And that's why the Democratic Party is doubling down on January 6th. It's right. not just because of Trump, it's right. because of us, too. Um, and right. so, again, like I said, I'm sort of like agnostic as to I, I could, and you could do anything to Trump, and I probably wouldn't be mad about it. But, you know, but the fact is that it's being used in ways that are, you know, are going to uphold, reinforce the institutional structure at the expense of, you know, movements. So, again, the. For me, it's never a question of rejecting those narratives entirely. It's a question of, of sort of trying to redirection them. It's a question of understanding the fact that, well, you know what? Cool. If liberals are mad at organized, you know, white supremacist groups, then let's really do something about that, right? Like, let's really do something about, you know, those elements that, that they were sort of closing their eyes to for so long. And, and let's understand that, again, of course, the, the FBI is not going to save us. The Supreme Court is not going to save us. What we need to do is build something radically different outside and against these very institutions that liberalism is intent on, on, on reinforcing today. So this has been Dr. Gio Mar. He is the author of many books, including Anti-Colonial Eruptions, Racial Hubris, and The Cunning of Resistance. It was great having you on. Thank you so much for the conversation, Adamanto.